Join us today during the Jeep Celebration event. Right now, get 20% below MSRP for an average of 15178 under MSRP on the purchase of a 2023 Jeep Grand Cherokee Overland 4xe or Summit 4xe. Not compatible with lease offers or with any other consumer and set of offers. 15,178 average based on 20% below average MSRP from all 2023 Grand Cherokee Overland 4xE and Summit 4xE models and dealer stock. Residency restrictions apply. Take retail delivery from dealer stock by 4-1. Jeep is a registered trademark. Hello and welcome to Politics World Run with James Carville and I'm Al Hunt. This week our guest is author, trade law specialist, and senior advisor with the Albright Stonebridge Group and the author of a new book on the Senate betrayal, How Mitch McConnell and Senate Republicans Abandoned America. It is Ira Shapiro, his third book on the Senate. Remember, we love taking your questions, so write into politicswarroom at gmail.com or send a tweet to at Politicon for next week's show. Now, we'll get to as many as we can, but don't forget to tell us where you're from. And please check out the links to this week's sponsors, Blinkist and Magic Spoon, in the show notes. We thank you for supporting our sponsors. It helps make this podcast happen. Please tell your friends about us and remind them to subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcast. Uh, James, there were a bunch of primaries um, this Tuesday around the country. Not any real blockbusters with one exception. San Francisco voters by a 60% margin recalled their left-wing prosecutor who's seen as soft on crime, which is spiraling uh, in, that, in that fabulous city. There are no other big takeaways, but that's a huge one, a continuation of rejections of the far left. James, you've been out front telling Democrats they need to get get out front on this crime issue. Will this do it? Well, it's a clear signal, Al, that Democratic voters are trying to seize control of the Democratic Party, which I think is an excellent idea. And this is one, as you correctly pointed out, this builds on what happened in the New York mayor's race, the Buffalo mayor's race, the, the Cleveland congressional race, the Minneapolis defund the police idiocy referendum, the Seattle city attorney's race. How much more evidence do we need that Democratic voters want to be in charge of what's going on in the Democratic Party, not the Berkeley faculty? And last night was a great win for Democratic voters and was a humiliating defeat for the Berkeley faculty. That's the way I put it, I know that Berkeley faculty members do that, but just just a convenient thing to talk about. And time and time again, voters are weighing in. And it, it, they just keep digging themselves deeper with this silliness. And finally, I, I, hopefully, this wakes them up and they learn to stand down and shut up. We may have to get the Berkeley and the Brown faculty uh, lounges together uh, one time. We should. Uh, just, exactly. exactly. Yeah. Uh, and I agree with you. Um, I, uh, let me point out, I, I think some of the commentary today has also pointed to the Los Angeles mayor's race. I think, uh, and Karen Bass, a congresswoman and the former speaker of the California Assembly, she's kind of painted in that same far-left category. That's wrong. That's just dead wrong. She's not a fringe leftist. She's a very effective speaker in the Assembly. In the House, she was a, a, a real player. She tried to put together a police reform measure until Republican Tim Scott uh, threw in the towel. Uh, she's running against a billionaire. She finished second uh, with, I guess, 37. He got 42. I hope Karen Bass wins in November because she'd be a good mayor. She's a good, um, she's a good politician. Yeah, I, I, I do not 
that all uh, conflate all with, 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 with the idiocy that goes on. I had something when she was at Berkeley. I mean, God, you know, do we have to do we have to go through that again? But she seems like a, a, a very grounded, thought-out person. I think she's very close to our speaker. My understanding was, you notice as much as I do, is they were really considering her for vice president. Quite, and, quite seriously. I think she was, Chris right. Dodd, who was the head of that uh, uh, selection committee, was his first choice. I think what, right. what, what probably eliminated her was not anything about her record, but she made, when she was much younger, she made some what would be considered today politically intemperate comments yeah. about Castro yeah. and Cuba. Well, I mean, be, okay. I mean, she was in her early 20s. Florida. I mean, my of course. God. Yeah. Cold. Chris, yeah. you know, and, and one of the things that I was reading is that the Los Angeles progressives were angry at her because she wanted to try to increase the size of LAPD. I mean, oh, I mean, how, how many times do you have to lose and cause people elections and quit electing Republicans and keep your mouth shut? Hey, Jim, uh, James, California has what they call a jungle primary. Everybody runs the top two finishers, uh, go on to uh, November. I, I once thought that's a pretty good idea. Now I'm not so sure. It's supposed to breed more competition. That didn't really happen. What's your, what's your take on jungle primaries? I don't, we have it in Louisiana. And mm -hmm. then I can't tell you that it's life-altering or anything. I, I don't know if, if it solves much. Uh, it, 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 usually you would have a primary, then a runoff, then a general election. Now you just have one thing in a runoff. I guess it does some good in that. I, I, I just don't. It's fine. I, I, I don't have. I don't have an issue with it. Uh, one way or the other, I think they, they thought it would foster competition. One other point I would make in California is the attorney general is a Democrat, quite liberal, done many good things. He didn't even. He didn't get any opposition. This is not a so much an ideological argument. I mean, there's some ideological differences between the, the identity left and liberals like myself. But there, you can do really good things that are very appealing to Democrats around the country and be very popular and win elections. We, you know, and you, you, where you ruin yourself is you get sucked into these people's debate. Well, there's one San Francisco liberal. Her name is Nancy Pelosi. Uh, she has a pretty good record for doing important progressive things. Damn right that, she does. make a difference, and that's a real contrast. Uh, You're damn but. right she does. James, uh, the January 6th hearings are going to start Thursday night. Uh, we're discussing this now. Some of you may listen to our podcast after the hearings uh, were aired in prime time. My impression, James, is talking to some people, is this committee has done a very careful job. The members are very serious. They have a good staff. They're going to produce some new stuff, and they're really going to put, I think, together uh, a, a, a better picture of this frighteningly dangerous effort to violently overturn our democratic system. Carl Bernstein and Bob Woodward uh, wrote a couple days ago that Trump committed sedition. Sedition. Uh, still... I fear, and you're going to talk me out of this, you're going to tell yeah. me I'm wrong, that this is going to be like his other offenses, from Access Hollywood to bragging about assaulting women to shaking down Ukraine by withholding weapons, and that most people are just going to go back to their respective corners. God, I hope I am wrong. Well, I hope you are too, but I don't know if I can talk you out of it, but I'll give you some things to remember about this hearing. 
first of all, it's kind of the only show in town. Mm-hmm. All right, there's not a lot. Of, it is not even a lot of sports competition. I mean, you got the NBA game uh, tomorrow night, which you'll have. No, no, I think the NBA game is tonight. I think tonight. I'm sorry, the NBA yeah, yeah, game tonight. Wednesday not tomorrow, night. Right, I'm sorry. right, yeah. right. You don't even have that. All right, and, and the networks, all but Fox, are going to run it. I wish, baby, you know, because the Democrats that look at Fox, they're going to run on Fox Business. I, I can can understand it. I want why they don't want to see it. And I think that if, if they tell a story, and apparently everything that I hear about this, Mr. I think it's Goldstein, the guy that got from ABC to do the, the videos, I think that they are, they're not interested in, you know, like legislation, everything they have, everything they know. They're going to try to tell a six-part story. And if they do that, and, you know, it, it a lot depends on the opening night. Now, what's going to happen they're going to compare the audience to Watergate. Well, nothing gets when audiences like Watergate got. All right, you didn't. People just didn't watch. I mean, of the fifty top shows in television history, excluding Super Bowls, Beverly Hillbillies, it's like fifteen of them. So they they will make a big do over. You know, or somebody lied, or there was a glitch in a video, and they'll they'll try to expose it for that. But I I kind of optimistic that. They know what their mission is, is to tell a story, and I think they have confident people in place to do it. And hopefully don't have some gas bag committee member, you know, doing this so often the case, rambling on about nothing. But I'm, I'm I don't know if I don't know if the fish will bite, but the, the lure is gonna be pretty attractive. I don't disagree with you. You know, I think you're right. And you mentioned uh, Fox and the Republicans, they are already, they, they are straining, actually, to, c- to create this counter-narrative. Uh, they're saying the committee was, is, is illegal, illicit. I have, I'm sorry, it's a committee appointed by the House. I have no idea why there's a question of its legitimacy. But Tuesday night, James, uh, doing a favor for you and our listeners, I watched the Laura Ingram show, and I just thought it would be important to get a take on this. And Laura's guest was Jim Jordan, the Bonnie and Clyde of late-night cable television. You remember Jim Jordan? He knows he was with the Ohio State Wrestling Program, so he knows a lot about cover-ups. But uh, Jordan, the tough guy... And shirt sleeves, as always, was outraged. Listen to this, James. He was outraged. This committee consists of Trump critics. You know, where's the other side? Well, Mr. Jordan, you and your party leaders rejected an independent commission. You're not on the committee, Mr. Jordan, because you may have been complicit with Trump that day. Your story keeps changing. So I'm sorry. Um, There's a reason why this committee has the composition it has. Republicans can blame themselves, and I certainly wouldn't want Jim Jordan to be anything involved in investigating uh, himself well of course and, and you got to remember it's if, if there's a armed robbery all right the guy that had the gun pointed at the teller's head got the money obviously they're guilty that's that's the 9-11 people all right mm-hmm. however the person that cased the joint is equally is equally guilty the person that drove the getaway car is equally guilty. The person that funded it, uh, you know, came up with the the plan is equally guilty. And if this committee is going to break new ground, they will show that this was something that was planned and executed beyond just the people that participated in it. 
And I suspect they're going to show a pretty strong complicity of current members of Congress, which would make them, under the eyes of the law, as complicit as, as anyone else that was involved in this horrific criminal act. So that, that's, that's one of the things to look for. But, you know, just remember, when, when you have a felony of this magnitude, there's a lot of people that are sucked into it. And I think a lot of these people are going to get sucked into it. And I wouldn't be surprised if Jim Jordan is one of them. I don't know that. Well, I don't know it either, but I wouldn't be surprised either given, um, given his history. Um, having gone through watching that program Tuesday night on Fox, I want to stick with it for one, one minute more. Uh, Miss Ing Ingram then went on a tangent ridiculing the committee for hiring that former, former ABC executive to help with a presentation. That really offended her journalistic ethics. Now, of <laughs> course, of course, Miss Ingram and her sidekick, Sean Hannity, ratings journalists, were constantly advised Donald Trump and Mark Meadows. I, I guess that's different. But then, James, Miss Ingram went on a tirade against Bob Woodward's journalistic standards and ethics. Laura oh, really? Ingram criticizing Bob Woodward's journalism. That'd be a travesty if it weren't so funny. Uh, I, it's, it's not even funny. It, it's, it's just how cheaply they view their, their, their viewers. I, I mean, she comes up with this crap, and these fat people that listen to that show lost any cognitive ability a long time ago. And it, it just shows how, how uh, the, the contempt that they hold their viewers in, that they could say something like this, and know very confidently that these people are too stupid to see the hypocrisy. Yeah, I agree. Well, uh, everybody listening, uh, watching on, on Thursday morning, Thursday afternoon, early Thursday evening, watch those hearings. Uh, they're, they're on uh, every commercial network, uh, every cable network except uh, Fox and on PBS. Uh, I'm going to be watching PBS, but whatever you watch, watch. Oh, no, I don't have to worry. I'm, I'm watching <laughs> for sure. Ira Shapiro worked for a half dozen prominent United States senators in the 70s and 80s. He has written three books on the Senate and its institutional decline. The latest is Betrayal, How Mitch McConnell and Senate Republicans Abandon America. Ira, first of all, thank you for being with us. McConnell started working in the Senate as a young age. He's been a senator for three and a half decades. His supporters say he's an institutionalist. You disagree, don't you? Well, Al, thank you and thank James for having me on. I really appreciate the chance to be with you. Two people who appreciate what the Senate was and what we've lost. Uh, well, I know McConnell likes to present himself as an institutionalist, but he long ago ceased to be anything like that. He has run the Senate when in the majority and obstructed the Senate when in the minority differently than any other Senate leader. He has trashed the norms and customs that made the place work. And he has disregarded the fundamental responsibility, I think, of a Senate leader to make the Senate work, to work across the aisle, and to try to work with presidents, even when they're not in your party. So no, he's not an institutionalist in any way. 
Well, well, let me pick up on that because um, no, we've known a number of Senate leaders who who, who could play rough. Uh, they could be tough partisans. Bob Dole, George Mitchell. How is McConnell different? We've known leaders that weren't partisans, but they always managed to balance their partisanship with an eye to the the public national interest when needed. They understood what the Senate was there for. And so they were always trying to balance the party against the country. And they understood that the country really came first. And Dole and Mitchell uh, have many bipartisan accomplishments that we can point to. And you can't find very many on McConnell. Uh, I tried to be as fair as I could in out writing this, Al, but uh, I didn't need many pages to describe his accomplishments. No, you didn't. He and Donald Trump are contemptuous of each other, yet he was a leading Trump enabler, as you as you write. But but what I guess maybe the worst of all, including for a month after the 2020 presidential election, wasn't until December 8th or 9th where he finally acknowledged that it was a it was a fair and honest outcome. That was the time that 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 the, all of the the crazy big lie stuff built up. And uh, I mean, McConnell was much more worried about, you know, Georgia elections than anything else. And he that, that that's one of the greatest abdications of his many. I think that's right. And I think it it, it was an abdication. But I also think, Al, as I wrote, I think he overestimated his ability to control the situation. I think he genuinely thought that when he decided the election was over, it would be over. And Trump would agree and all the Republicans would fall in line. But I'm, I, like I wrote and like you just said, those five weeks between when the networks called the election for Joe Biden and when the Electoral College met five weeks later, that was when the big lie festered and poisoned the country. 50 million people out there, 70 percent of Trump's voters thought the election was rigged because McConnell and the others didn't say otherwise. James Carbell. So, so our, Al and I have this friendly, but but. A slight disagreement. I'll, I'll frame it, and if you want to change the framing, please do. Basically, Al says if McConnell would have demonstrated some courage after the election, he could have gotten Republicans to go along, and they could have stopped this nonsense. And I said he can, he could do no such thing. He's at the mercy of his caucus, and if he would have done that or gone along with impeachment, they would have voted his ass out in, in an hour. And that he, he he operates in a very, very narrow space. And any if he were George Mitchell, if he were Bob Dole, if he were Howard Baker, if he were Mike Mansfield, we don't have that because the caucus doesn't want that. And he is at the mercy of the caucus. And if he tried to exhibit an iota of courage, they would run him out. Yeah, let me just let me just add that you framed it very well. Because I don't want to... I'm not sure I'm right. Right. I'm I, not sure I'm right either. That's why we're asking Ira. I, I, I think, first of all, I think, Ira, he could have delivered nine more votes for impeachment and to get rid of Trump. Uh, I mean, I think there were enough there, the Rob Portmans of the world, the people who were retiring. Uh, and if you had killed the king politically, um, 
the king might have gone away. He didn't want to go away, but he wouldn't have had anything. Can't couldn't threaten to run again. Uh, it would have been a real roll of the dice, but it would have been a lot better for the country and in the long run, maybe for McConnell. Yeah, so I, I agree with everything Al said. If he had tried that, they would have deposed him in five minutes. Okay. You be yeah. the judge. Well, look, I, James, I come down more on Al's side in okay. this one. I mean, my view is that there were many times, going back to the Obama years, but also in the Trump years, where if McConnell had done certain things, I think other Republicans would have followed it. I think his excuse that I couldn't do it or that I had to hold the caucus together, um, I just don't think it washes. I think that impeachment was a good example on the second trial. He said, well, there aren't enough Republicans to impeach, but I th convict, but I think there would have been if he had done it. And who exactly, well, if the caucus had deposed him, if the Cruz Hawley wing of the party was that strong, well, at least he would have done something for the country. I don't think it would have played out that way, actually. But that was his calculation. Right. All right. I mean, I, 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 I appreciate it. I, I, I just think that yeah. 26 Senate Republicans that would have voted him out instantly and they would have. It, I, I, I don't like McConnell. I think you're exactly right. I just don't think the Republican Party is construed could have a Bob Dole, Howard Baker, or Everett Dirksen. I, I think those that. Well, it, it, it certainly has no question. It's a much different Senate, much different Republican Party. And McConnell, I always give him credit as his, for his ability to surf the madness of the Republican Party. Right. The party has moved from conservatism to radicalism to nihilism to white nationalism. And he's managed to, you know, to surf that madness. But partly because he never, never, whether it's the Obama economic stimulus or whether it's the Affordable Care Act or whether it's impeachment, you go down the list, he has never exercised leadership in the nation's interest with the possible exception. They did do the CARES Act. I give them credit for that. But there isn't much else there. And of course, we haven't gotten to the Supreme Court yet which will be his legacy that he would say that's, that's his legacy. The ends have justified the means in his view, but I think it was very destructive to the Senate, the court and the country. Yeah. Yeah. Well, um, yeah, I think what, what McConnell would say is, okay, yeah, you guys don't like it, but we now have a six, three conservative majority, probably, uh, for the next several decades. So we won. And, you know, it's a big victory for me. It's going to affect the country the way I want to. So, you know, go home if you want to cry. Well, that is exactly what he would say. And I would say that the truth is that politics actually isn't war. Politics is a very tough game that is played presumably within a certain set of rules and customs and traditions. And if you discard those things, if you trash them, then you're on the way to losing the democracy. And that's where we are. And Al, I'll give you an example. Going back, spoiler alert, I'm kind of old. When Nixon got, when Nixon got elected, Nixon had run in part 
said, we're going to move the Supreme Court. You know, the Warren Court was too liberal. I'm going to make it more conservative. Nixon got four justices confirmed in five and a half years. Nobody ever questioned the legitimacy of those justices because we had a legitimate process. Right, right. McConnell trashed the process. He's poisoned, poisoned the Senate, poisoned the court, poisoned the public attitude toward the court. And yes, he won. And maybe that'll be of lasting value. But he's trashed the democracy. Ira, I've always thought that what McConnell, I know, what McConnell cares most about is money. I mean, money and power. And that I don't think he has strong views about abortion or guns or affirmative action. Campaign finance stuff back in the 70s, he actually advocated public financing. But he does care about the money that comes into him. And he cares about the judges are very useful if they're conservative judges for the Koch brothers and a lot of that other network that contributes to him. Is that is that an unfair assessment uh, or is he really all about that kind of money and power? Well, I think it's a fair assessment. I mean, I'll, I'll give him his due to say, I believe he is a right of center conservative. Mm-hmm. He would say, you know, I think I believe in less government. America is not France. By that, he means he's against health care for people and child care, child tax credits, etc. He's a right of center conservative. But I do think he has been motivated highly by understanding of the donor base, what it would take to keep the donor base happy, to get their money and to return the favor to them. The donor base is not exclusively the fossil fuel industry and the NRA and the gun manufacturers, but they're important parts of it. And look, he he grasped the importance of the court, but also interestingly, as you know, Al and James, Trump grasped it. When they went to Trump in 2016 and said, you, you need to put out a list of justices that you would appoint, judges you would appoint to the Supreme Court to solidify the right wing, the so-called legal conservatives, and the Christian right as well. Trump got it. He understood it. It helped him win the election. And then he delivered on it. So, yes. McConnell is very conscious of the donor base. Let me ask one more for turning back to James. Uh, one other illustration. The fall of 2016, uh, when the intelligence community uh, had, had undeniable uh, proof that the Russians were interfering in the American election, uh, they went to the White House and they went to all the congressional leaders to put out a joint statement that just saying, this is unacceptable and Russia's doing something that's wrong. McConnell refused to go along. Right? Right. I mean, that was putting... And he refused to go along because, although he was not enthusiastic about Trump, he was very careful never to criticize Trump. He wasn't agonizing about it the way Paul Ryan was and others were, Trump's behavior, etc., He wasn't going to do anything that hurt the Republican nominee or the Republicans who were running for the Senate. And so he blocked that action. Now, this is sort of typical of McConnell. McConnell is no friend of Putin's. 
He's he's a pretty hard liner on Russia, but it didn't matter. He supported Trump. He protected Russia from that kind of criticism. And of course, he killed, you know, he did everything he could to mischaracterize the Mueller report. So the fact that he really does not like Putin, he's not a Putin guy, it doesn't matter because he still protected Trump at all costs. Right. James. I've worked in Kentucky and I'm, I'm, I'm sitting here scratching and you can help me here and Al can too. There was a real tradition of kind of moderate republicanism in Kentucky when it was a democratic state. John Sherman Cooper, who was a descendant of the first president of LSU, William Tecumseh Sherman. And as I recall, there was another kind of moderate Republican senator there that when McConnell started in politics, he actually was a kind of pro-civil rights Republican a little bit. He, he, he didn't he didn't come at politics from this direction. He adjusted. Is is that is it correct to say that he adjusted to the Republican Party as opposed to adjusting the Republican Party? I think that's right. I mean, certainly Kentucky politics. Kentucky was probably a balanced swing state could go either way for a long time. Certainly, Kentucky has moved emphatically to the right, as as have other states, right? right. Arkansas, Louisiana, et cetera. A lot of states that produce Democratic senators or moderate Republicans, they've changed over time. And certainly McConnell has changed over time in that regard. I guess from my standpoint, I, I understand politics. I don't expect people to be perfect or to ignore their the importance of their reelection. But I do think, and here's what the book was about. I do think that senators have a special responsibility. Fundamental responsibility, number one, would be to check a president who is threatening the constitutional order. And in that regard, they didn't, they didn't step up to it. Well, I, I guess I understand what you're saying. I'm, I'm just like the Republican voters, you know, the analysis that Kathy Barnett who was the, the the craziest Republican at since in that Pennsylvania field, which is saying a lot? I think had the best critique. MAGA was always that Trump just activated us, <laughs> and as long as Trump does what we want, we're fine with him. And you know, when he told those people in Alabama to get vaccinated, it literally booed him off the stage. That I I, I think that the actually. The Republican voters are in charge of the Republican Party because they're producing the kind. Mitch McConnell is a reflection of what Kentucky Republicans want. And he doesn't and he, he operates in a very narrow space, as do most of them. And, and we I think we just got 40 percent of this country that's gone batshit crazy and politicians want to get elected, follow them. And that's where we are. It's, it's very unfortunate. Well, look, I don't disagree with that, James, the way you put it. I only think that if certain people, and I would say Trump for one, McConnell for another, I think that Trump, look, I think Trump could have done himself a great favor and the country a great favor by saying, we're going to have the best vaccines that anyone has ever come up with. We're going to have them in record time. 
All we need to do until they come in record time is to wear these masks and practice social distancing for a while. If he had said that, I don't think the Republican governors or the Republican base would have gone the way they did. So it's an interaction between the leaders and the followers. And I've got this quote in the front of the book. I go back to George Ball during the Vietnam escalation. He who rides the tiger cannot choose where he dismounts. They, they rode it too long. And it is, I, I noted that as you did, James, when <laughs> Trump said you ought to get vaccinated and they boot him off the stage. Right. They wouldn't have a year early, two years early. But McConnell would say, look, I'll, I have polio. Of course I'm vaccinated. Yeah. No, no. I, I mean, and, and he absolutely. But, but we know what McConnell practiced social distancing, particularly from the White House in 2020. We know that McConnell, but we know what he, and he made some statements. We know how he gets engaged when he cares about something. He's yeah, like, very like, forceful and focused. Yeah, and like he was Powell. not like that. Like like Powell. He gets very engaged when he's engaged in power. Yeah. Uh, Albert, uh, you might ask one more thing before you go, because I, I, we have mutual friends and, and all of them have great respect for you know, like, and you're a connected guy. And this is my area, but maybe you give me some advice. Is there anything you think, the Demo- what, what, what are kind of a couple of things you think the Democrats can do to to enhance their dismal chances of having a decent 2022 between now and November? I think that they, I mean, the political climate is terrible. And right. as we know from past, long past experience, right. the White House gets held accountable and it's not a good time and out off year elections. Right, we know that. I think we have to unify the Democrats behind the proposition that it's the Republicans who are obstructing, and it's the Republicans, whatever your issue is, if it's abortion rights, if it's gun control, if it's environmental and climate change, if it's democracy, if it's voting rights, the same people are holding back the country in all of those. You know, you don't have to choose one issue or another. Democrats, progressives and moderates are always fighting with each other or feuding a little bit. They ought to be able to unify. I, I couldn't agree more. And I'm going to turn it back in, just make a simple point. Trump's approval among Republicans, that was 42 overall. Among Republicans, he was at 95. Among Democrats, Biden is at 75. If he was at 95, he'd have a 50% approval rate. And the reason is, is these goddamn Democrats keep telling other Democrats that Biden hadn't done anything for you, and they believe him. Yeah. And there's no enforcement. And where we lose, we're going to lose the election. Not we're not going to convert any of these Republicans. We're going to lose it because other Democrats spend their time pissing and moaning about Biden, and you get crappy turnout and crappy enthusiasm. But anyway, that's me. Al, back to you. I've talked too much. Well, no. Listen, Ira, you have been a great guest. This is really a good book. Uh, all of you out there, Betrayal, Mitch McConnell and the Senate. Uh, it's a it's a, a really uh, a, a depressing saga, but it's really important. Uh, and and Ira, congratulations on your on your third book. And let's all hope that your fourth book on the Senate is about 
the revival, the resurrection of the Senate as we once knew it. Well, full disclosure, Al, I don't know that there'll be a fourth book on the Senate, but, <laughs> but I think it is important that it's that the book be seen as a call to action. The 2020, our democracy's hanging by a thread. And the January 6th committee takes one row that's important, but the people have the chance in the Senate elections to make a difference. And those races really matter. Absolutely. I got an idea for our, you and Al, I got an idea. Yeah, why don't the three of us go to the Monocle and have a drink and pretend like it's 1967 and we're rushing along <laughs> and crafting a deal together for the tax code. <laughs> Man, I like that idea. I don't even know if the Monocle's still there, but I'll take you up on that. <laughs> All right. Ira Shapiro, thank you so much. It's a, it's a really terrific book. You've been a terrific guest. Right. Thanks. Thank you. Well, thank you both. Thanks for having me. All right. And now for those terrific questions that we get every week from our terrific listeners. We'll start off with James with Peter in Tucson, Arizona. He said, would you consider having a weekly feature naming a candidate or organization, James, that you think we should donate to, people like Peter, so that our money can actually make a difference? And where would you start? That's not a bad idea. Maybe we, we could talk about it. Uh, but, but, but that's a very good question. In fact, in, in, the truth of the matter is, and I'm, I'm not an expert on this, somebody should do the top 10 Democratic state parties and the 10 worse, and I don't know how you objectively do that. I don't think it, I'm qualified to do it. But what I would recommend to Democrats is you look at states where you have a lot of competitive races, Senate races, governor's races, House races, legislative races, you know, uh, down-ballot statewide races. You know, Wisconsin is always listed as one of the better state parties. Remember, we had Senator McMurrow in Michigan, which is, I don't think there's a Senate race so much in Michigan, but there's a lot of really critical elections there. Secretary of State, and Governor. The, right. She says they have an a excellent state party, an excellent state party chair. Uh, that, that's, you know, I think North Carolina's got a, a, a big bang for its buck. Uh, and sometimes if you're in doubt, give the money directly to the candidate. So let's if you give the money directly to the Beasley campaign and directly... <laughs> to the Ryan campaign, that's the highest form of money because the campaign can spend that in any way that they want to. Uh, some of the other m monies are, 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 are more restricted. So in, in in the absence of, you know, knowing something really clever, I would advise the default position would be a direct contribution to a United States Senate campaign in a, in a very competitive race. Well, well, James knows far more about this uh, than I do, uh, and I think it, w w you also want to look at some of the less visible races. I think Democrats have wised up and are looking at Secretary of State races, but let me give you two others, and that's the Supreme Court elections in Ohio and North Carolina. Those Supreme Courts have been absolutely a bulwark against right-wing gerrymandered uh, state legislatures, and they both have seats that are up this year that will determine whether they'll continue to be or whether there will be no check or no balance. So look at that North Carolina and that Ohio uh, state Supreme Court races. 
James, yep. our next question is from Megan. Now, I know I can pronounce Megan. I know Megan. She is from, and let me try this, Okanamawak, Wisconsin. Okanamawak, <laughs> I think. And, Megan, I want you to write it and tell me how badly I botched that up or if I was close to right. She said, Megan loves Joe Biden, but she's not sure about him running again. She's also putting aside all her progressive wants and have become a one-issue voter. Democracy. Good for you, Megan. I will vote for anyone who upholds and protects our democracy. Would Jennifer Granholm be good? She'd be great, Megan, but she wasn't born in America. She was born in Canada, so she, she wouldn't qualify. But there are probably others who, who, who would. But, Megan, you have really framed, I think, the considerations as well as anyone I've, I've, I've heard. Well, I, I think I've said it on the show before. Wisconsin has some of the most difficult place names to pronounce. Oh, yeah. and, and, you know, they have what they call the, the wow counties around uh, Milwaukee. They're kind of three suburban counties that are very populated. And I can't pronounce the name of a single one of them. The only one, if, if my default position is Dane County, because I can pronounce that, and that's where Madison is. It's, I, I can get Brown. Yeah, Brown County's Green Bay, isn't it? <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I could get Brown County, Green Bay, you know, Dane County, Madison, and then I, I, I'm kind of out of gas from there. But, um, yes, and you should follow our friend Fred Wertheimer, who's very passionate and very eloquent on this. Our, our friend Ann Applebaum is probably one of the leading authorities on this, but, but, but you're right. Without democracy, not much else matters, and it's, it's a real simple thing to do. I, and I really mean this. If you want to preserve democracy, vote Democratic. All right? That, that, it's, it's just that simple. You're going to have to rule, and I want to talk about this with our guests today, but the most effective thing you can do is elect more Democrats. Are some of them going to be scoundrels? Yes. Are some of them going to be people you don't be effective? Yes. But by and large, if you had 55 Democrats in the United States Senate, our democracy wouldn't be in very big trouble. I mean, there's one anti-democratic party in the United States, and I'm, I'm not talking about, you know, just big, big D Democrat. I'm talking about small D Democrat. And I'm sorry, that's just a fact. The most effective, in the most effective bulwark against the encroachments we have on democracy is just simply elect more Democrats. James, our next question is from Jane, and she is from St. Louis, Missouri. I got that one right. And by the way, Megan from Wisconsin, please write us and let me know, uh, let us know uh, how we did on uh, on your town. Uh, but Jane in St. Louis, Missouri wants to know, James, what do you think of ranked choice voting? Well, boy, we got that about the, the, the open primary voting. It, right. I don't, I've never voted in it, and... Uh, I, I, I've never voted in it. It looked like it produced the result in New York that the voters desired. You know, I, I think that a lot of people think a long time to think that there's a quick fix to make things more democratic and simpler. You know, whether you should have runoffs and primaries and, you know, George even had that runoff provision in, in, in general elections, which is a holdover. From from Jim Crow, actually, that you know somebody could come in and win a plurality with a lot of black votes. So he had runoff. Uh, 
I, I don't know. I, I would defer to democracy experts on this in the best way, but I, I, I don't think any of these things have proved to be either as good as its proponents have suggested or as, as bad as its opponents have suggested. I don't, I don't, I don't know. You, you probably into this as much as I am. Do you have anything to add to that? Or well, no, I agree that? with that. I don't think it's a panacea, to be sure. Uh, on balance, I, I, I tend to favor it because the reason is that I think, you know, when you express your preferences, uh, sometimes the person, when, when you don't express your preferences, the person uh, who is the most on, on, the, on the fringe, if you will, whether it be right or left, right. is likely to get the most votes. But when you express preferences, it may moderate a little bit. I, I oh, but it, you, know, you, you want to, you know, let's say you, you like Karen Bass, but you don't have a problem with Caruso, but you don't like the other people running. Right. Well, if you rank them, you, you, you feel like you have, you, you're empowered a little bit more. But, yeah. you know, I, yeah. I, can, I can see that. Because sometimes, you know, a lot of times you vote, particularly in primaries, and it's, well, gee, I kind of like both of them, but I guess I like this person a little bit better than that one. It just gives you some satisfaction. Yeah, no, I think it does. And your New York example is a good one. It was a pretty good one in a main congressional race a couple years ago, too. Right. But um, Deborah in Manhattan says, what do you think of the idea of not banning assault weapons? By the way, we have a lot of gun questions today. We only get to a few. Okay, not banning assault why. weapons, but making, making a law stating that they can only be used at gun ranges. The weapons would have to be locked up and stored at the range. The owner would not be able to leave with a weapon. I would take it in a nanosecond, and there's no way you'll ever get it through the Republican Congress. Uh, they may pass a very tepid uh, gun law uh, in the next week or two. I give Chris Murphy enormous credit for working on this, but it's going to be disappointing uh, in contrast to what we need and what we should have. I'd be all for doing whatever they can do, but they're not going to do anything on assault weapons, I fear. Let me add a, a, a codicil here. What we had in 1994, then Senator Joe Biden, President Clinton, passed a crime bill that, yes, had a ban on assault weapons, all right? People don't know this. Ten, for 10 years, in 1994, there were 400,000 assault weapons in the United States. George W. Bush and the Republicans, without much resistance, honestly, uh, got rid of it. We now have 20 million assault weapons. That's just a fact. That's history. People get over it. The job got done and they undone it, and now we're trying to put the genie back in the bottle. And you're right, I take, you, 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 now you're talking about, well, maybe you gotta be 21 to buy an assault weapon. It was a time, 10 years in America, people were hunting, people were going to gun clubs, people were practicing marksmanship, they were doing all of these things, all right? They just didn't have assault weapons, and life went on just fine, thank you. Yeah. On that issue, three cheers for uh, Matthew McConaughey. Uh, yeah, God, I mean, he, he, he's trying. And he's from that, that he's from and, and, Yeah, that pediatrician was good today, too, from Vivaldi. But it's not, yeah, it's yeah. all good. It, 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 the shame of it is, is we know what's going to happen is at best, and it looks like that even might be receding, they'll do some chicken shit cosmetic thing, and we'll all have to, well, you know, and that's the best we can do. That's the best we can do. And then there'll be another shooting, and we'll tell his parents, look, right. we did our best. Right. right. No. We actually had this thing beat and quit. 
I would still take the chicken shit thing over nothing, uh, but uh, it's not nearly enough. Yeah, I would enough. too. James, our next question is from Joe in Carroll County, Maryland. My son Jeffrey lives in Carroll County, Joe, oh, wow. so I know what a great place that is. Uh, this is good, James. He said, you have frequently mentioned reading spy thrillers in your spare time. W would you all consider spending some time in an upcoming episode recommending your favorite reads in this category? No, Joe, we'll do it right now. James. Well, I, I, my, the guy that I just like is Frederick Forsythe. I, I don't know why, you know, Jay the Jackal is one of my I, I guess it qualifies as a spy thriller. Yeah, sure does. You know, Odessa File or things like that. Uh, obviously, John LeCare, I've read his books. That, that they're, they're very intellectual. I mean, it's not a breezy read, but, uh, I mean, he, he he's more of a literary figure than uh, – Anything else? The, the the person is, and it doesn't qualify as exactly a spy thriller, but the the guy that I really like that's very popular, and it started to do some good TV on it is the Jack Reacher series uh, by an author by the name of Lee Child. I generally read all of those, but but some of those spy novels are, are, are very deep and very complex. You know, I mean, I, I, those are the ones that come, I'm rattling off the top of my head. Well, I'm going to go back. I haven't read John Le Carre in um, in years, maybe decades. And I've one of my summer bucket list wishes is I'm going to go and read uh, at least one or two of his novels because you're right, it's deep, but God, it's good. Um, and I'm going to give you one other one, Joe. It's not exactly a spy novel. Uh, it's and I'm going to tell you what my conflict is on this. It's a it's it's kind of a political sex spy uh, novel called Let's Not Do That Again, and the author is Grant Ginder. Uh, I just finished it. I loved it. The reason I have a conflict is Grant was a student of mine 17 years ago, and he's just published his fourth novel. Can you imagine James being 17 years out of college and publishing four novels? But anyway, no, let's I not do it again. I want to add let's one more to that list. It's a guy named Alan First, F-U-R-S-T. And most of his stuff takes place in pre-war Europe, you know, kind of 38, 39, 40, that, that, that kind of, you know, in pre-war, early World War II Europe. And, and they're very good. They're, they're complicated but approachable, and they have, you know, as most of these instances, kind of complicated characters. Okay, Joe, we'll keep coming back to this. Thanks for the question. Uh, Rachel in Brantford, Connecticut says, would it be to Democrats' advantage to start speaking like Republicans? What if Democrats started to imitate that they may not accept the 20 or 22 or 2024 results? Rachel, sadly, you are on to something. That's exactly what's going to happen. What the, the great danger that the Republicans and Trump and his enablers have done in saying elections aren't in the up and up, there's no way in the world Democrats are going to forfeit uh, that just to just to Republicans. And I can just imagine now the idea of a graceful person who actually won, but was the election was stolen from him, uh, is Al Gore. Uh, and he did it with great grace, great distinction, great honor. I don't think those days are going to happen again. I think, but I think Trump has ushered in a whole new insidious, insidious era of casting doubt about elections. All right, this is something I get a lot. Why don't we? Why don't we just lie like they lie? Why the hell are we constrained by this? But if we lose an election, why don't we just say we won? That's what they do, and they people believe it. There's a reason that we don't. Is our voters wouldn't stand for it. They're bullshit. 
you're wrong. Our voters are, are, are too smart, and their voters are too stupid. They'll believe anything, right? And they'll believe without a shred of evidence, I mean, a shred, that the election was stolen from. Well, if we would have said, if, if Terry McAuliffe would have said the election was stolen from me, our voters wouldn't put up with it. I, and I think that the reaction to Bush v. Gore, and I, I, I don't blame Bush because and every understand the whole, almost to a person, everybody applauded Gore and said, well, the Supreme Court has decided. As it was, they stole the fucking election from Al Gore. They just did. He won it, and they stole it, and we went along with it. And once they did that, they knew they could get along with it, get, you know, get anything they wanted to do. Ban assault weapons, fine. No one was going to say anything. I mean, so good. You got to close the chapter on the 90s. Great. Look at the crime rate. Absolutely. James, we have one more gun question from John in Sonoma, California. John, I think you're a, a, a repeat questioner, and we appreciate that. Good. John says, imagine every Republican politician will do nothing to ban these horrendous uh, abominations of slaughter. That's right. Then imagine these same Republican politicians do nothing in the name of James Madison and the founding fathers. Are we kidding? Where's the action? I mean, I think he's suggesting that these guys are pretending that they are only following originalism, which is, of course, as we know, largely bullshit. Look, okay, I, I get, get considerably over my head here. But part of the Republican mythology was there was a great time in the past. You know, generally, they might like, should have think of 1958, all right? Or the founding fathers, you know, were all very discerning, wise white men. So originalism says, if we just go back and divine what they were thinking, then we could have the country we had in 1789, which was a country, of course, that had slavery, that only property white males could vote, that anything could happen. You know, it didn't, it, 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 they come, you know, when the Second Amendment, which, by the way, I don't think, and most people I know, and most people you know, don't think it addresses at all the, the right of individuals to carry arms. But that's an argument that the Supreme Court is decided, and by the way, they're going to decide this case out of New York State, and this, this case can come down and say it's going to be easy to carry a concealed weapon. And if people, if you don't vote on that, after everything you see, let, let's make it easier to conceal a weapon so you can go shoot up more people. That ain't going to make any sense. Right. But That's going to be a bigger yeah. decision than the hell it, I, decision, I, I, I'm the, the problem they have is that they're voters. Their voters are like stupid and believe anything. The problem we have is our voters. Our voters are smart and discerning. And you you can't lie to them because they'll they'll fight you back. Which I, I, I kind of like being part of that party better than another one. On on guns, if you want to go back to originalism and the history of this, read Michael Waldman, great guest on our show. Michael Absolutely. Waldman's Second Amendment. It's the best book uh, that's been written on that. Okay, Absolutely. keep those keep those questions coming in. They're terrific. If we didn't get to yours this week, we'll get to it next week. Okay, and now for the outrage of the week. Uh, I commend to every listener out there the Atlantic's Jennifer Sr.'s brilliant and frightening profile of Steve Bannon. The former Trump campaign chief 
would be in the slammer today probably if Trump hadn't pardoned him. He is very smart, he's relentless, he's vile, he's a congenital liar who some dismiss as just an egomaniac hustler, a blowhard. I'd like to be confident of that, but if Republicans gain control of the House and then the White House, this hate-spewing Rasputin may be a bigger deal. And I think uh, Miss Senior, who I don't know, but she's one hell of a reporter, she captures it brilliantly in that Atlantic piece. And James, on top of his other sins, his podcast, Mr. Bannon's podcast is called War Room. Have you considered <laughs> suing him for title infringement? <laughs> you know, it's, am it's amazing a guy can't think of his own title. The thing that strikes me about Steve Bannon, if he ever went to jail, I would feel sorry for his cellmate. That guy stinks so much you can smell him. and it, Take a picture of it and you can smell it. <laughs> I, I don't know the last time he's taken a bath and changed clothes. But, you know, he's what passes for a genius in the American right today and he came come for the name of his own freaking podcast. You know, and for all I know, Laura Ingram will say that we stole our name of our podcast from Steve Bannon. <laughs> and you know what? Her stupid viewers would believe her. Well, she get Jim Jordan a second, right? Right, uh, you, right. You have your own outrage, though. Well, I, I, Al, I, I was going to have my outrage about this Georgetown law thing, which I think is ridiculous, and uh, it, it was it had to do with it, it, it's kind of technical. You can look it up if you want, but your, your outrage has to be that Lauren Boebert and now Steve Scalise, who I know. Have taken up this point. Look, we didn't ban airplanes after 9/11, so why should we ban assault weapons? Well, the truth of the matter is, people need airplanes; they don't need assault weapons. But even taking that absurd, ridiculous, stupid jackass argument, we sure in the hell did a lot to regulate flying, didn't we? Sure I mean, did. Maybe we didn't ban them. But I was around in 2001, and it was you had to go through a lot more rigmarole, and you had to jump through a lot more hoops to get on an airplane in November of 2001 than you did in July of 2001. Their the, the arguments are so utterly stupid on their face. You know, it's like Laura Ingram saying Bob Woodward doesn't have journalistic standards, and she does. You, you just get frustrated and then you just got to realize that their voters are so stupid they'll believe any shit they tell them, including making the point, well, I'll tell you what, but after 9-11, we, we didn't ban airplanes. Why in the hell are we going to you know, do anything about assault weapons? Just the, the jackassery of the thing is, is so overwhelming. But it does good to point it out sometimes so sane people that are listening to this show can just see how insane they are. Well, well. You're right. You're yeah, I mean, right. the Georgetown thing was a. It, 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 if anybody's interested, they could look it up. It's a kind of a free speech issue. Yeah, it's a Georgetown professor who put out an outrageous tweet. Right. Uh, but it was a you know it's a it's a free speech uh, free speech matter. He got I guess suspended for a while as they looked into it because uh, there was a lot of complaints, uh, particularly from black students. They then said, okay, you can come back in, and then he instead resigned and, you know, right. it, 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 it was They got a technicality, said they really couldn't do anything about it because he wasn't on the faculty. It, it, I, the more I looked into it, it's silly and, and ridiculous and, you know, but what's really evil is, is this 
sort of arguments that they make, and so I, I canned it. But it, it's worth a good laugh. Yeah, it is. Hey, thanks for listening to Politics War Room with James Carville, and I'm Al Hunt. Don't forget to send your questions for us by email to politicswarroom at gmail.com or tweet them for next week's show at Politicon. Following this episode, we'd really appreciate it if you check out the links to our sponsors, Blinkist and Magic Spoon, in our show notes. We thank you for supporting them. When you do, you help make this podcast happen. Now, to keep up with us, subscribe to Politics War Room on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you listen. Please rate the show with a five-star review. We'll be back next week with another show as we continue our War Room planning.